right now and once more, it appears cinema is at a crossroads. With the consolidation of streaming, the film experience is yet again undergoing great change. How much does sitting on your couch watching your 75-inch television screen with surround sound affect your engagement with Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, Martin Scorsese's The Irishman or Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story than if you were to experience them in the multiplex? Or for that matter, the difference between watching any of those titles on your home entertainment system and your PC, your tablet or heaven forbid your phone. Not too long ago there was another debate as to whether digital cinematography could ever surpass the wondrous variations of celluloid. The vast majority of audiences couldn't tell the difference, so really it was only a debate amongst filmmakers. But since it came down to financing, it really wasn't their decision at all. Moving back further to the 1950s, Hollywood saw a dramatic slump in ticket sales, all because of the emergence of a little box in the corner of American living rooms. The studios took one look at the fuzzy, black and white fishbowl image with dubious sound quality and deemed it a most serious threat to the near monopoly they had enjoyed on entertainment for the previous three decades. And if you count back those 30 years to the 1920s, you will find there was another debate raging between filmmakers. Not about an external threat, but an internal development. Would the emergence of synchronised sound destroy the art of cinema? Wait a minute, wait a minute, you ain't heard nothing yet. Wait a minute, I tell you, you ain't heard nothing. All artists, whether they be painters, dancers or playwrights, are challenged by the limitation of their medium. By its nature, painting can only suggest movement. A dancer can move, but can only suggest speech. A playwright relies on speech, but can only describe the world beyond what we see on the stage. Through their respective limitations, each art can only suggest those aspects they lack, and therefore only imply a wider meaning. That leaves space for interpretation, and it is in that space that the art comes to life. Back before synchronised sound, Cinema presented a canyon of silence, in which the audience could fill in the meaning. But with the arrival of synchronised sound, that space was closed off. What was once implicit was now explicit. What you saw was what you heard. And where once cinema was exclusively visual, suddenly sound tyrannised the medium. Around the globe, and no matter what their nationality, filmmakers as different as Sergei Eisenstein, Paul Rotha and René Clair each rejected the development as a crude novelty, with no less a talent than Alfred Hitchcock describing sound cinema as no more than photographs of people talking. The opposite of that is what Hitchcock called pure cinema, and here he is in 1966 explaining that term to the then film curator for the Museum of Modern Art, Peter Bogdanovich. Subjective treatment, uh, <coughs> which is to me the purest form of cinema. Put the audience in, in the mind of the character. That's the purest form of, of cinema to me. And I suppose Rear Window is the best example of that. Mm. And there you have a close-up. Oh, of course, you close-up of a man, what he sees, mm. and how you build up the ideas from the visual. Yeah. You see, he sees things going on. You re he reacts to it. To it. Yeah. And that's, uh, that, that can't be done in any other medium can't be done in the theatre, can't be done in a novel. That's the purest form of cinema, mm. is a subjective treatment. Yeah. Objective shooting is a theatre. Mm. You see, it's, a, it's an extension of the theatre. You know, I'm not against movies that uh, talk and they photograph people talking. That's a different kind of movie, but they're not motion pictures. Mm.
But, as is always the case with any industry, the market response was the determining factor. Audiences were thrilled with the sound of human voices, the tap-tap-tap of dancing shoes, the rat-a-tat-tat of machine gun fire, the thunder of stampeding horses, the duet of two singers. Only a foolhardy filmmaker would dare to fight that tide. Charlie Chaplin was no fool, yet that is what he did. By far the most popular entertainer throughout the 1920s, a decade which saw him write, direct and not only star in, but compose the music for, seven productions, Chaplin waited a full four years before releasing his first feature-length motion picture in the sound era. Yet, when it arrived, it was silent. Here is Chaplin in a BBC interview conducted in 1954, talking about his methods for making a silent movie. City Lights tells the deceptively simple story of a nameless, homeless man, played by Chaplin, befriending and falling in love with a young blind woman, played by Virginia Cheryl, who sells flowers from her street stall. Yet simplicity was no disguise for Chaplin's uncertainty. He began filming City Lights on December 27, 1928, and didn't finish shooting until September, two years later. This for a movie that runs barely 87 minutes. Clearly, apprehensive as to how his modest tale might be received, especially considering that he had not appeared on screen in three years, shortly before the film's release on January 30, 1931, Chaplin wrote an article for the New York Times, arguing that, quote, pantomime and comedy represented a universal art which could not, should not, be ousted by the current hysteria for talkies. However, although Chaplin held deep reservation about the new development, City Lights is not without sound. Outside of the score that he composed the film, Chaplin offers moments, on specific occasions, where we hear sounds that are not musical accompaniment, but instead, natural sounds that Chaplin synchronises with the image. For instance, one evening, the little tramp rescues a drunken man from attempting to take his own life by throwing himself in the river. Played by Harry Myers, the suicidal man turns out to be a millionaire, and as a reward, he brings the little tramp back to his house, where he's in the habit of throwing enormous parties. At one such party, the little tramp accidentally swallows a whistle, and then, just as the singer is about to perform a song, he gets the hiccups. Then, later, in an effort to secure money to pay the blind woman's rent, he enters into a winner-takes-all boxing match we hear a bell being rung to start and finish each round. And later still, back at the millionaire's mansion, a pair of thieves break in 
and in a quick sequence of mishaps, the little tramp is accused of attempted burglary. As he tries to escape, a police officer draws a gun and shoots at him. So it appears that it wasn't sound to which Chaplin was averse, but rather talking. And that is evident from as early as City Lights first sequence. There, a group of municipal dignitaries have gathered for the unveiling of a memorial named Peace and Prosperity. As a speech is made, Chaplin does not allow us to hear the words, and instead on the soundtrack, we hear... Many critics have said that Chaplin used the kazoo to lampoon the talkies. Yes, but I think there's more to it. I think it's also a rebuke on the city's so-called dignitaries. Chaplin's disdain for a ruling class that would rather donate a facile monument to... What exactly? Peace? The war ended in 1918. Prosperity? The world was in the throes of the Great Depression. Which makes the little tramp's appearance all the more poignant. With mass unemployment poverty, bankruptcies, evictions and suicides, Chaplin's alter ego was suddenly that more vivid. So the kazoo isn't a jibe at the talkies, it is a jibe at the rhetoric of the self-serving rich. However, there is a third reason for Chaplin to use the kazoo. Its sound helps set the groundwork for the plot because it gets the audience to tune its ear to the notion that sound will not necessarily be what the characters think it is, specifically the blind woman. In the moment the little tramp first sees her, she mistakes him for a very rich man. All because she hears a car door shut and then hears a man asking for flowers. She assumes that the little tramp is the man who owns the car. So Chaplin is pulling apart the newly developed cinematic language, all by showing the difference between the world of sight and the illusion of sound. And in the opening up of that space, Chaplin was rendering implicit what sound would have made explicit. Had City Lights been a full talking picture, the plot's delicate contrivance would have collapsed completely in the first reel. With the advent of sound, cinema had doubled its means of expression. With speech able to convey character and complicate the drama a lot more quickly, films became more plot driven. Not having appeared on screen in three years, Chaplin was clearly concerned that not only his stories, but his way of telling stories was a thing of the past. Once the biggest star in the world, the question now was, what would carry the film? The star or the story? Here is Chaplin again from the same 1954 interview, this time fielding a question from Dillis Powell, the then critic for the Sunday Times. And quickly following Chaplin's answer, you will hear one of Britain's greatest ever producers, Sir Michael Balkan, querying the maestro's position.
That is a question worth considering, especially if you're a screenwriter. What makes a great script? The plot or the characters. When looking at a movie, we're looking to see ourselves. Whether in the cinema or sitting at home on the couch, what we see on screen, unconsciously, serves as a mirror. If we engage in the plot, it is only because we recognise ourselves in the characters. However, it is not the character that makes the plot compelling, but rather the performance. The actor on screen convinces us of the story's credibility. How? Their face. Since the mid-1920s, Charlie Chaplin's face had been the most instantly recognisable in all the world. And there lies one of the many layers of irony in City Lights. The blind woman has no idea who he is because she can't see his face. But whenever the little tramp buys a flower from her, their hands touch. And because she cannot see, she believes he's a millionaire who will kindly pay for an operation that will restore her sight. Clearly then, Chaplin is drawing a sharp contrast between what is seen and not seen. In a career that frequently depicted the abysmal gap between rich and poor, Chaplin delivered the greatest contrast in his entire filmography. The millionaire throws around cash as if it were petals falling from a rose. In fact, watching The Millionaire and his parties, I'm always reminded of the epic shindigs hosted by one Jay Gatsby, who, come to think of it, was infatuated with a woman named after a flower. Five lost years struggled on Daisy's lips, but all she could manage was... While Chaplin's tramp serves time in prison for robbery, Cheryl's flower girl has her sight restored and, opening her own shop, her business blooms. Now released from jail but once more homeless, the tramp happens to pass by the flower shop. For me, what follows is one of the most superb montage sequences ever in the entire history of cinema. He sees the woman inside. She sees him, but of course does not recognise him. Humoured by his gaze, she comes out of the shop to offer him a flower, and then puts a coin in his hand. And that is when she recognises him. The revelation relies on being there no dialogue. Had City Lights been a talkie, the tramp's voice would have been the signifier. He gazes at her as if seeing her for the first time. She is so changed, confident, independent and thriving. And what does she see? In real life, Cheryl was extremely nearsighted, so perhaps that helped with her performance. This, after all, was her second film, and it was the first time she had ever acted on screen. Standing before her is not the man she imagined to be the mysterious millionaire who had so generously paid for her operation. And as Chaplin sees her face change from confusion to shock, Cheryl sees beyond the surface. Because, where she was once blind, she can now see a man who was but invisible to everyone else in the city. A man who is jobless, homeless and nameless. Empathy is the primary essence in any story. Without it, the audience would not be interested in the characters. And so, we see our faces in theirs, as she sees her face in his. But there is one final layer to the scene. At first, Cheryl did not recognise the most recognisable face in the world. 
Everyone in the cinema knew what Chaplin looked like, except Cheryl's formerly blind flower girl. So it was only when she held his hand that she realised who he was. But how many of us ever get to touch a movie star?